With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Multiphasic transmissions overlapping. It's almost a gibberish. Subspace. Dare to wonder. Dean Haglund, in a coming show... Well, I don't like how that sounded at all. <laughs> no, exactly. I was just in Answer Dan saw some of those. <laughs> God. Although you'll understand why it's really particularly bad what I was thinking about. In a forthcoming show, we will discuss the death of Paul Rubens. Oh, yes. That poor guy just can't escape what happened in that adult movie theater, can he? Um <laughs> By the way, I I was stunned to realize it was a triple feature he was seeing when he was arrested. Okay. Um, well, do we go into this now or not? No, no, we don't. No, we don't. Because on a forthcoming show, we'll discuss the death of Paul Rubens and his legacy. This week, I just had to mention one tribute to him that really caught my attention. Okay. And, and it was uh, on social media. On uh, whatever they're calling Twitter now, is it X? I don't know what it was. X Twitter. Uh, X Twitter. It was. Uh, it was by David Hasselhoff. Uh huh. Paul Rubens was a great, great friend, and there's a photo of young Paul Rubens and young David Hasselhoff together. Oh, is that what that's from? Yes. D Paul Rubens was a great, great friend. He gave me the Muppets for my birthday, and never forgot anyone's birthday from our class. He was in my class at CalArts and roommates. He was always kind to me and to everyone. He will be missed. Hashtag Paul Rubens. Hashtag Pee Wee Herman. So I ask you, Dean, more surprising that Paul Rubens died or that David Hasselhoff went to CalArts? <laughs> Both of them are tough, right? Uh, CalArts is renowned for its... Uh... Well, more visual art. I didn't know their performing arts section, but uh, it would well, make it, sense. It boggles the mind that Hasselhoff, actor, singer, um, might also be a visual artist. Wow. Could that be? And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. If he can do, or maybe he just hasn't practiced them, all of these things take constant practice, you know. And with that, I say welcome once again to Your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, Season 3, Episode 79. Could that be wow. possible? 
We are practicing. We've been every pra- week. We've been practicing for 16 years, and when we get one of these right, it's sayonara, sucker. <laughs> Coming at you from oh, Los Angeles, up a big city with a Spanish name. I am Phil Lernis, and coming at us from the environs of Motown. Why, it's the Motor City adjacent madman. It's TV's Dean Haglund, safely back, I assume, from his trip to America's hat. How was the return voyage from Canada, Dean? Well, uh, as you recall, uh, my voice was pretty ratched that last episode. Yes. Uh, so imagine that plus being tired while you drive across uh, the state of North Dakota uh, into Minneapolis. Holy smokes. Minnesota, I guess. I was in Minnesota, wasn't I? I don't Somewhere. I don't, I don't know. I was not with you, but I will be with you in person in short order there oh. in the environs of Motown. Will I not? Well, that'll be exciting. How will we record a show here? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to. I don't have any recording devices at all. Oh, my goodness. But yes, yes, you have sent a list of everything you want to do in this uh, magical city. And uh, we'll endeavor to do some of them. We don't have to do it all. We can have it all, but we don't have to do it all. Uh, <laughs> and then, no sooner do you recover from the uh, drunken debauchery in which Lily will engage during our visit, than uh, you have to get back out on the road for a big uh, X-Files convention there in September, don't you? 30th, 30th uh, anniversary of the beginning of X-Files. It will be this month in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, get your tickets if they're not already sold out. Now that is in Minnesota, Dean. Yes, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's that's correct. Fargo, Fargo, uh, board, there's the West Fargo and East Fargo. One's, one's on, what's, what's the Minnesota side called? It has its own town name. What? What are you talking about? I know Minneapolis well, and Saint. The, I know Minneapolis and Saint Paul. That's all I know, man. <laughs> okay, sure. But like that, uh, also Fargo and something is the town, and the border goes through it. North Dakota and Minneapolis or Minnesota. Do you know? By the way, speaking of Saint Paul, and you know, there's 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 many people apparently on my father's uh, lineage, on his side of the family, that live sure. in the environs of Minnesota, and I've never met them. Hello. Uh, but but St. Paul also is a foundational figure in the history of Malta, where I'll be going in <laughs> October. I mean, he, he, he literally preached there. His ship crashed on the way to Rome, to stand trial, his ship crashed. He ship was shipwrecked in Malta, and he spread wow. and he spread the word. And it's how Malta became a, a Christian nation. Look at that—the things you learn. Yeah. Oh. I, oh. I, I'll be hitting. I'll be peppering you with <laughs> such uh, nuggets of historical <laughs> fascination uh, leading up to my trip. And then, and then, no doubt, uh, coming we'll away. We'll play a whole game of Malta trivia. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, finally, we will be able to perfect this show. <laughs> it's all Malta that's been missing. It's all that's been missing. Oh, you know, play along at home. Oh, boy. Okay. Hey, Friday, 
uh, there was a meeting between representatives of the Writers Guild and the Association of Motion Picture uh, and Television Producers. Uh-huh. Big deal, right? It, uh, you would think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at that meeting, they agreed that they could not resume negotiations. So... <laughs> And uh, only little things are slipping out about what uh, what transpired during that meeting. One of the things the writers hit him with a with a brand new set of um, what do you call it? Like health care demands, health insurance demands. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the uh, producers hit uh, the writers with uh, the need for a 100 percent media blackout if negotiations were going to continue. Okay. So no reporting we, on the negotiation. Yeah, exactly. How can we prevent ourselves from coming off as monstrous uh, in in public? Let's see. <laughs> well, we could stop behaving in a monstrous way. We could stop saying monstrous things. Oh, no. You know what we could do? We could prevent those monstrous things from being reported. <laughs> Yeah, that seems was easier than and, not doing monstrous things. And and then uh, as they were trying to discuss if negotiations reopened, what those issues of negotiation would be, uh, the representatives of the AMPTP uh, basically said, well, look, we can't uh, agree to anything right now. We, we, we have to go back to the bosses and get their agreement. So we can't tell you anything. So why are you here? Really? <laughs> it's really. That would be the next question. So... Uh, meanwhile, as I've said, right, not only is box office uh, setting records, uh, which helps the likes of the Warner HBO streaming service Max, because it allows them to announce the exclusive release date this fall onto its platform of global blockbuster Barbie which helps their subscriptions. Uh, but meanwhile, you have Amazon share price at an all-time high with a huge increase, a 22% increase in ad revenue. Uh, Warner Discovery's bottom line has been helped by $100 million since the strike began. Uh, meanwhile, Disney has lost a billion dollars because of its content that Ooh. they've released, like the Indiana Jones and the Haunted Mansion and whatever that last Pixar movie was, Elemental. <laughs> they've, they've, they've lost, they've written off a billion dollars Ouch! in this quarter. So uh, none of that uh, makes me think that, again, <laughs> the media giants are in a hurry to settle anything. Right? <laughs> Why would they? Well, why would they especially? You would think, well, but don't they, don't their families, don't their loved ones need to consume entertainment to lift the burden of a weary, tiring world from their shoulders? No, they don't, because our pal Dean Hagland uh, every week gives suggestions on shows in the archive, in, uh, in the pantheon that can be enjoyed uh, over the previous weeks. He suggested uh, Toast of London, The Broken Wood Mysteries, Degrassi, which I had to learn, not from Dean Hagland, but from my own research, starred Drake. Drake! The most Drake of all things. The most popular musical star in the history of, well, Canada. Uh, <laughs> and 
Uh, and 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 then he threw us for a curve by just dropping in at the end of last week's show a Boston legal bomb. So uh, four shows already. We can hardly wait. Dean, what should all of us be availing our, ourselves of now? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm embarrassed. This one's a bit cheesy, but I still watch it regularly. Um, and it's set in Toronto, the turn of the century, Toronto. Of the last century, it is a, a retro uh, crime drama called Murdoch Mysteries. And wow, this Murdoch fella, he's a detective at the uh, Toronto Constabulary. And uh, boy, he's got a brain on him like he's inventing stuff and things and runs into historical figures like Alexander Graham Bell and uh, Mark Twain. Uh, all of it happening right there in Toronto in between the years 1880 and 190 whatever and they're accurate so you know the first couple uh seasons there's there's only bicycles and horses and then as the show progresses they bring in uh early vintage uh, uh motor cars and uh the technology of the telephone improves and so on and so forth so it's uh it has the uh, production uh designers on their toes to keeping it historically accurate. Uh, what is cheesy about that? I mean, <laughs> well, because of the storylines and perhaps the acting style might be a little off for, for some, I know some Canadian actors refuse to audition for it because it's a bit, uh, you know, you, on the, uh, unless I'm mistaken, you're the same guy that proposed a show that dealt with the, with the triumphs and tragedies and drama of teens with Degrassi. And which also starred Drake. I mean, and now you're saying cheesy? <laughs> you're right. Well, it seemed Degrassi was, had a little more um, uh, serious, well, I, somber. I have heard, really? I know of the Murdoch mysteries. I can't say I've availed myself of it. I've always kind of thought maybe I should. And now you're actually giving me pause. <laughs> to see why you haven't still yeah you know start early on because uh the uh history and the storylines build upon one another if you're late model uh, murdoch mysteries there'll be references that you may have forgotten about or other characters that come back a second or third time that uh you'll want to see their their intro episodes as it were i was uh kind of tickled to see in a uh, uh, episode of the current season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds that uh, one of the characters goes back in time to present day Toronto. <laughs> right? Yeah. Did you see that? I was uh, like, that was pretty funny. Yeah. And, and, then, and then when they have to g get the help from someone in history, they think that they know can provide them what they need. They travel over the border into Vermont. I mean, this is this episode was made for me. I don't. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. It's just a short hop from Toronto to Vermont. Uh, you a, skip Montreal altogether. My favorite bartender at my now favorite bar uh, said to me one day uh, last week, actually, uh, I think you do really well in Toronto, he said to me. <laughs> and, and and I said one I don't know if that's a compliment and two I didn't ask but but please 
Pour, pour me another beer and tell me more. Tell me how much how well I could do in Toronto. Speaking of the Star Trek franchise of which we were just speaking, don't you know? I, I had made the bold proclamation last week that I think Star Trek Picard season three might be the best season of Star Trek ever. And I repeat that because I did get messages going, really? Star Trek Picard is the best Trek ever. I need to be very clear on this. Season three is the best <laughs> Star Trek ever. Season two, one of the worst seasons of Star Trek ever. But here's the trick. I really kind of racked my brain about this. To enjoy season three fully, yeah, you pretty much need to see much of, if not all, of seasons one and two to be Damn able it. to be familiar with the characters and the storylines from the previous two seasons. You also, of course, uh, need to be um, familiar with uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, and, and, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine because they continue storylines and story threads from all those series and really pay them off. It, that's what makes it so great is it, you talked about the 30th anniversary of X-Files. It's, it's 35 years of storytelling paid off uh, in season three of Come on. Card. So um, 35 years all in one season. Yeah. Yes. That's pretty good. Hey, okay. uh, let's, in honor of Drake, star of Degrassi, let's do a <laughs> all-musical edition of uh, Celebrity Deaths, shall we? Celebrity Deaths. Dean, this one was really sad. Coco Lee, a singer, songwriter, and actress who released 18 albums and in 2001 became the first Chinese-American to perform at the Oscars, died on July 5th by suicide in Hong Kong at the age of 48. As we like to point out, if someone you know is experiencing warning signs of suicide, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. That number, once oh. again, is 988. Uh, How you, handy. You can also text HOME to 741741, and you can access the online chat service. Formerly the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the network provides free confidential support for people in crisis or emotional distress 24-7 all year round. Uh, Coco Lee and her family relocated to San Francisco from Hong Kong uh, when she was nine, where she attended Presidio Middle School and Raul Wallenberg Traditional High School. Well, I'm sure that's a great school. I <laughs> just would love to see that name on the uh, sports team's yeah. jerseys. <laughs> right. Oh, go Raul. Raul Wallenberg. Uh, well, traditional. Well, <laughs> traditional. Yeah, they probably just referred. I go to traditional is probably. <laughs> what you do. I go to the experimental high school more than the traditional. While studying, but we're all over that one too. While studying at the University of California, Irvine, she visited Hong Kong, participated in a singing contest, and was immediately offered a recording contract by Capital Artists. By the wow. mid, by the mid nineties, her singing career was thriving across multiple languages. She released two albums in Mandarin in ninety four as well as albums in English and Mandarin in 95. In 96, she signed with Sony, and her first record for them, Coco Lee, was the best-selling album in Asia that year. 
The following year, she released records in Cantonese and Mandarin. This pattern of multilingual work would continue for the, her entire career. Wow. Her success as a singer uh, led to her doing screen work, such as voicing Fa Mulan in the Mandarin version of Disney's animated Mulan. And as I wow. mentioned, in 2001, she broke ground with American audiences when she became the first Chinese American to perform at the Oscars singing A Love Before Time from Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She oh. continued to have major screen success in China, often as a judge on talent shows like Chinese Idol and Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> she was the first Chinese ambassador to Chanel and was also involved in charitable work. In the early 2000s, Lee was a youth AIDS ambassador in Bangkok, Thailand. So quite the prolific artist and uh, and quite the meaningful life and yeah. uh, take, taken by suicide at uh, altogether too young age. Andy Rourke, who you may not have heard of, Dean, the name might yeah. not immediately spring to mind, was the bassist for a band you have heard of, the Smiths. Oh, yeah, of course. Known for their melodic 80s indie rock. He died May 19th in New York City of pancreatic cancer at the age of 59. Uh, he joined the Smiths in 1982, a few months after Morrissey and Johnny Moore founded the iconic band. He replaced their original bassist just after the first live gig. <clears throat> uh, it's a little bit of a Ringo Starr kind of story when you think about it. Right. Uh, Peak best. Uh, because after all, Andy Rourke is, uh, as a bassist, is is providing a, a lot of the beat, right, uh, for, right. for the music. Um, over the next five years, he would play on the Smiths' four iconic studio albums, helping craft their songs uh, that became indelible parts of indie music history and many people's upbringing, quite frankly. Those songs include This Charming Man, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, How Soon Is Now, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, and Last <laughs> Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. Uh, this artist and this band means so much to so many people who uh, are near and dear to me. I thought I would just share what uh, one of them, Lily's improv partner, the brilliant Fernando Funes, wrote. The Smiths have been the soundtrack of my 30s. They helped me get through the pandemic, heartbreak, and loss, and this general melancholy that has come to stay. Throughout that whole time, Andy Rourke's beautiful bass lines gave the Smiths' music an extra touch of magic. I'm a expletive-deleted bass player. It means bad. Let's call it crappy. Who gave up on music to focus on comedy. So the bass has always been close to my heart. Andy wasn't your typical bass player. He didn't just mirror Johnny Marr or play a simple root melody. His bass lines were their own compositions in the already highly layered and textured guitar tracks of Johnny Marr and complex but relatable poetry of Morrissey. His bass lines had weight and dimension as if you could grab a hold of them with your bare hands and feel them pulsate right through you. His bass was the concrete part of a poem where the abstract metaphor could anchor itself and let loose into the air like a kite floating on a gust of wind. 
Thank you for making my life better, Andy Rourke. Wow. Wow. I that mean, guy is yeah, I, I got to tell you, I picked that because of how beautifully written it was and also because of how emblematic it was of stories I was hearing from so many, again, creative people uh, and, and people close to me in my life. The, the, the death of Andy Rourke really affected people and inspired just this outpouring of, dare I say, poetic appreciation. Wow. Amazing. How about Tom Verlaine, a singer, songwriter, and musician and frontman for the New York-based 1970s punk band Television? Was, oh. the, was this band right up your alley? Uh, not right up my alley, but they I had listened to them. They might know, yep. Television drew influences from jazz, experimental bands like the Velvet Underground, and surf rock musicians like Dick Dale. In turn, Verlaine's uh, fearless approach to song structure and his exploratory approach to the guitar became an influence on bands that followed, including R.E.M., U2, Sonic Youth, Matthew Sweet, and The Strokes. He was born Thomas Miller. He began his musical journey studying the saxophone and piano. In particular, uh, he was inspired by the work of jazz giant Miles Davis. Television's oh. airy and windy compositions were a stark contrast to their peers, such as the Ramones and Blondie. The band would record just two albums before breaking up in 1978. They would periodically reform in later years, and Verlaine would go on to have a solo career that spanned 10 albums and numerous collaborations. He died January 28th in New York City following a brief illness at the age of 73. Wow. And finally, Sinead O'Connor was oh, yeah. an Irish singer-songwriter whose biggest hit was the 1990 chart topper, Nothing Compares to You. She died July 26th at her home in London at the age of 56. I, of course, knew her. There was no way to be a human being on this planet at a certain <laughs> point in time and not know, never mind the voice of Sinead O'Connor, but also the look of Sinead O'Connor. Right. Um, she was, you know, as close to household as a as a rock and roll star could get. Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace, dare to wander. She was born in 1966 in Glenagary, Ireland. She was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. It's been Troubled childhood, she experienced the divorce of her parents and subsequent child abuse, later turned to shoplifting and truancy. Well, that's that's what you majored in there in Canada. And I did it both poorly. It was while she was in a reform home for her bad behavior that she began exploring her musical talent, writing songs and recording a demo tape while still a teenager. She started singing with the band Tonton Makut in the mid-1980s, soon breaking off to pursue a solo career.
Her debut album, The Lion and the Cobra, was released in 1987 and quickly gained a following both in Ireland and abroad. She was 20 years old and pregnant while recording it and soon gave birth to her first child, Jake. The song she created for her debut included Mandinka, a major hit in the UK and a college radio favorite in the US. She performed it on Late Night with David Letterman and later at the 1989 Grammy Awards, where she was nominated for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance. Other singles from The Lion and the Cobra were Troy, another college radio hit, and I Want Your Hands on Me, which was remixed with a rap interlude by MC Light and rose to the top of the dance charts. Uh, And it was more than just her striking music that brought her notice from the time of her solo debut. Her look was as unique as her sound, a delicate frame with large dark eyes and a completely shaved head. I mean, we could be describing me quite frankly. O'Connor explained in a 2014 interview on uh, Oprah, Where Are They Now?, that she chose to shave her head in direct rebelling against record executives' attempts to style her in the early days of her career. They wanted, oh. me, they wanted me to grow my hair really long and wear mini skirts and all that kind of stuff because they reckoned I'd look much prettier. So I went straight around to the barber and shaved the rest of my hair off. there you go like if you didn't like her before that is pretty darn likable right there yeah it sure is she went on to that uh to elaborate that she deliberately chose to make herself look less traditionally feminine to protect herself by discouraging attention from men Her confrontational spirit was another aspect of her rise to notoriety. From the beginning, she was vocal about her political views, speaking freely about the issues that were important to her, uh, such as the Irish Republican Army. And, of course, her her political involvement uh, would come to a head a few years later at the height of her fame. Uh, The 1990 album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, was widely praised and sold more than 7 million copies. And it yielded the incredibly successful single, Nothing Compares to You, written by Prince. And that song, when it was reinterpreted by uh, Sinead O'Connor, it received raves. It reached the top of the Billboard chart. It won an MTV Video Music Award for Video of the Year, the first time a woman won that award. Oh, um, o- O'Connor was scheduled as the musical guest on the October 3rd, 1992 episode of Saturday Night Live, performing first a cover of Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home, a track from her newly released album, Am I Not Your Girl? Her second song was another cover of Bob Marley's War, sung a cappella, and with the lyrics somewhat changed to focus on child abuse. But as she sang the word word evil, she held up a photo of Pope John Paul II and tore it into pieces, saying, fight the real enemy. Right. It was a stand against an institution that she felt had wronged millions, but instead of drawing attention to injustice, uh, the audience and celebrity reactions led to a massive controversy that derailed her career. She was hit with a major public backlash, including an incident two weeks after her Saturday Night Live appearance when she was booed after taking the stage at a Bob Dylan tribute concert. Wow, I don't remember that. Can you imagine that being the reaction at a concert 
that's a tribute to Bob Dylan of all people. <laughs> right? Where you yeah, it's about uh Harbin's 60s ideals and then you start booing someone who's embracing it's, those ideals whatever so, their position. It's so strange like to have lived through an era Dean where we're back to people, you know, telling well athletes shut up and dribble but you know, telling musicians shut up and play and and you know, why do artists have to, you know, get involved in politics. Yeah. Stay out of politics. Leave it to the politicians. Right. right? And meanwhile, these people are fans of things like Star Trek and Bob Dylan from the (laughs) sixties. I know. I know. And they say these things without irony. I know. Anyway, it wasn't until a decade later after this controversy, of course, that the general public became aware of the full extent of Catholic priests' sexual abuse of children and the Catholic Church's attempt to cover it up, which had been right. the reason behind O'Connor's protest. I don't want to delve into how her career suffered and, and how the sales never really returned. Where I think I'll end is, is with the fact that in 1999, Sinead O'Connor was ordained as a priest in the Irish Orthodox Catholic Church which is not a, which is not affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. She had previously stated that she would have liked to have been a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, but that it does not allow the ordination of women. So that right there is something to wrap your head around, huh? Right. I mean, she yeah. was she was devout and therefore brought that faith to her protest towards an institution that she nevertheless harbored great love towards. I mean, what a symbol, I guess, of what you and I talk about. Hold the people and institutions and places that you love accountable. Right. To be the best versions of themselves. Of themselves. Rise above whatever your past instead of trying to bury your past mistakes, bring it forward and rise above it. One final footnote in a, in a fascinating life that I'm certain will be depicted in a, a big screen or small screen movie at some point. And, and who would we get uh, to play Sinead O'Connor, except perhaps Natalie Portman as she looked in V for Vendetta. That's the only thing that I can come up with. Right. But in 2018, O'Connor converted to Islam and changed her name to Shuhada Sadakat. Fantastic. All right. Wow. (laughs) Let's talk movies a little bit, shall we, Dean? Let's do that. Because I do have a, a classic figure of big screen comedy that I've been dying all week to ask you about. Oh, let's start there then. There is a movie that's number 22 on the sight and sound poll of the greatest films ever made uh, Uh by a director and starring that director who was once voted on an entertainment weekly poll of the greatest directors of all time uh, to be in the top 50. So uh, a foreign language filmmaker in the top 50 on Entertainment Weekly. And shockingly, until this week, despite all that, I had never seen one of this person's films. How is that possible? And this this week, 
I availed myself of two of his six feature films he directed, both of which he starred in, the first two in which he portrayed his beloved character creation of Monsieur Hulot. I saw Jacques Tati's 1953 Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Yes. And his 1958 Mon Oncle. And my life is different having seen these films. I haven't even watched his avowed masterpiece playtime yet. Um, oh, yeah. Where would you begin in talking about the brilliance of Jacques Tati, who as a performer uh, is, you see all the mime training, all the stage training that he had yeah. for decades. But how does someone with that background, and I do have an answer, but uh, <laughs> how does someone with that background also become such a masterful director? I mean, this guy's movies are what uh, Cahiers du Cinema would end up describing as the authorial presence. I mean, they may have been referring yeah. to somebody else, but boy, this guy's movies embody them. Sure, and that's exactly it. I, I would actually go, as a mime artist, you are aware not only of your body and space, but of the pictures you're creating, right? Think of man pulling rope or walking against the wind or in a, in a plexiglass box. All of those, you are creating a larger picture with your body. So what I always see in Jacques Tati is he knows composition. So how to frame himself within the frame and where to get the the biggest laugh versus the you know contrast between uh, an everyman and the scenery around him, um, his vacation. He's often, you know, they had those beach houses all the time and he uses the a framing aspect of those little beach huts on the beach when he's at the, at the seaside resort. Uh, so many brilliant ones, just him walking up three flights of stairs in this prop house where you see at times the stairwell, uh, a balcony, a hallway, and he he appears in each one of them slowly, but it's a brilliant static shot where the comedy is taking place inside the frame. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you learn in mime training, how you're always aware of what the audience is seeing as you're performing it. And I think that's made him uh, the most why he's one of the most brilliant directors is because of that ability of performer audience uh, connection. That's so fantastic. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's equaled except by here we go with the, with the silent giants. And (laughs) these movies are largely dialogue free. The Tati movies, the story with the exception of maybe a line here or there is totally independent from needing to be able to hear or even understand the dialogue. Right. So yeah, yeah. my point is Tati would be right at home in the silent era. However, so much seems to be so beautifully orchestrated around pieces of music that he had picked out in advance. So sound and music matters. But again, uh, I mean, you'd have to go, I think, to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin to find people who matched performing genius with visual genius. And really, for my money, only Keaton in terms of framing them so artistically. Right. Yes. 
and and doing the comedy in camera with a static shot. I think more than anybody, Keaton had that physicality that you would watch that keep your eye entertained as it runs through the frame. You have to have the awareness. You have to tell the cameraman to lock it off and keep running till I've done all my comedy gags I can think of. I don't know how much Jacques Tati improvised. That's a, a question that I've never researched. But uh, clearly, he was detailed, detailed in the his choreography. Gags and his the choreography, yeah. and and because it's not just him. I mean. So many people get to be so funny in his movies, often on screen at the same time, because he really used depth. I mean, he yeah. used foreground and background and middle ground and side to side off camera space. I mean, this guy was playing three dimensional chess with his right. comedy. I wanted to see Playtime because it was on the sight and sound list, and I said, I'm going to watch all yep. of them. But I realized I should avail myself of the earlier Monsieur Hulot films. So right. I notice that uh, Mononcle and the English language version, my uncle, both playing mm -hmm. at the American Cinematheque down the street. Oh, look at that. So in anticipation of seeing that, I decide I'm going to watch Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, which I recorded a few years ago off TCM. <laughs> so okay. here's how I do it. I watch Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and uh -huh. then two days later I go to see Mononcle at, on mm -hmm. screen. And then I come home and I immediately watch Mononcle again on the small screen, <laughs> recorded, restored uh, by Criterion. And, right. and now I'm going back and watching Holiday again. Like before I even get to playtime, I want to like squeeze so much out of these movies. Mr. Yeah. Ulo's Holiday, a black and white, so simple. And here's the weird thing. It's both the first and last a Monsieur Hulot movie because its release date is 1953 slash 1978 because in 1978 Tati doesn't only restore it he changes it he re-edits it and goes back and films new stuff in 1978 in black and white in 133 and changes no. gags that he realized should be paid off better, including a big reference to Jaws, which was such a big global hit in 75. And it's, it's seamless. You can't tell what's new in that film. And that's the version that survives. Um, because indeed, oh. he said, now I've finally finished the movie. Wow. It was Jeez. the author's decision. So it's 1953-1978, Monsieur Hulot's uh, Holiday. And then Mononcle, his first color film. And, uh, and the color is so wonderful. And the distinctions between the, 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 the colors and the sort of crumbling ancient streets in the neighborhood right. where... Uh, Monsieur Hulot lives versus the modern new suburban area where his nephew lives. Um, it, you know, wow. It's just, it really, it uses color so effectively to, again, make commentary. And Mononcle, mm -hmm. it's so funny because it was so rejected by uh, the, uh, the cultural elites in France at the time of its release because of how anti-consumerist it was seen oh, as being. And right. then it turns out the consumers that buy movie tickets made it an unprecedented hit. And so <laughs> the cultural elite said, 
Oh, it's a work of art. <laughs> well, it's also shockingly for as simple of comedies as he does. There is a lot of uh, sociological and uh, uh, finger wagging at modern society um, over and over. When you see Playtime and Traffic, which was done in 71. His final, his final as Monsieur Hulot, the fourth one. Yeah. 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 Uh, there is uh, thoughts to uh, overcrowding pollution. Oh my gosh, the cubicle scene in Playtime uh, where everybody's stuck in seemingly doorless cubicles, like square boxes. It is terrifying, some of the imagery uh, in that one, as well as uh, gently humorous. So well, it's it's an incredible um, that's contrast. That's the thing, the gentleness, even with the criticisms, the implied and direct indictments of aspects of life, there's a gentleness. Uh, yeah. There's there's a whimsy. There is pain and sadness and sorrow in these films. Uh, he's a classic clown in in that regard. It, there's great right. pathos. But uh, what is so wonderful about Monsieur's Ulo, Monsieur Hulot's holiday is the way that it ends on such a touching note of of almost romance and Mononcle such a touching moment between the the nephew and the nephew's dad, Monsieur Hulot's brother-in-law, um, which utilizes, as far as I know, the only close-up in the film. He eschewed close-ups, which is right. also great. And yet Monsieur Hulot could become beloved as a character uh, without the need to show him in close-up. Um, but, Amazing. But, but a close-up is used quite delightfully to show uh, the boy and his father holding hands at one point in the movie. And uh, I did not have a dry eye at that moment. <laughs> it moved me so much. Um, I'm not crying. You're crying. Boy, if I hadn't wanted to talk to you about this beforehand, when I researched him, and of course I read about his legendary career as a stage performer, and, and oh my gosh, the parts of history during which he was forced to go up on stage and, and clown, I mean, during occupations, right. during wars, during global financial crises, making people laugh under those circumstances while maintaining this, uh, yeah, maybe world-weary, but ultimately gentle whimsy. Uh, that's remarkable in and of itself. Yeah. But this question about framing, oh my goodness, to read about his background, you know, to, to delve into his history, which contains so many colorful figures, uh, but one in particular, his mother's father. So his grandfather, grandfather on his mother's side, uh -huh. who was best pals with Van Gogh and whose most important client was Toulouse-Lautrec. What? Because what did his grandfather on his mother's side do? He ran the most important framing shop ah, in oh all God. of Paris. And it was this business that they expected Jacques to take over. So he was raised in this business and learned the art of framing. framing. Look at that. I had no idea. I mean, this is, uh, there are so many connections to Dean Haglund here that it uh, boggles the mind. 
I am the gentle wit of Jacques Tati. Well, I mean, honestly, like you watch Mon Uncle, you watch Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. I feel like on one of these trips to Detroit, like we're just we're making a, a, a Monsieur Hagland film. I mean, <laughs> Monsieur like, Hagland. Mm, everything I treat with the uh, delight, it doesn't phase me. We call, I mean, no, like, no, 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 no. Quite the opposite. Monsieur Hagland <laughs> is the Canadian version of Monsieur Hulot. There is a deep-seated rage just beneath the uh, icy exterior. But passive. Let's say how passive that rage is. I mean, is. would we call the movie The Insanity of Green? Maybe we would. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Um, look, a, a, a few r- new and recent films. One film that, again, I need to ask you about. I found it very, very funny. I know very little about the game on which it's based, but Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Right. I finally saw this uh, from uh, directors John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. I think our pal Mark Hershon had told me that this was really a lot of fun. Uh, But again, he's, like you, uh, an aficionado of the game, the underlying game itself. Right. And, uh, uh, And he said that it really pulls off a, a nifty trick to be very entertaining for people who love the game and for people who don't know the game. Well, if those people are him and me, then yes. It turns out it was quite the box office disaster. Uh, right. One of these cases where it generated a lot of money but lost even more money, though in researching it, it seems to be because the younger fans were heavily involved in a boycott against the companies that owned the IP at the time. Uh, ah. Wouldn't you like to know those things when you go into production on a movie three years <laughs> beforehand that, oh, there's going to be a boycott against the companies involved in the IP. But boy, um, if you're making a big budget uh, adventure film, can you do wrong having Chris Pine in a lead role? I think no, you not. cannot. The, right. He is he is such a naturally entertaining performer. It it continues to boggle my mind. You know, from Star Trek to the Wonder Woman, to Into the Woods, and now and now this. My goodness, if you had to reboot uh, an Indiana Jones, let's say, let's say that he's the guy I would want to have do it. The the humor that Chris Pine would bring to that, right? So you are a Dungeons and Dragons fan and you uh, also love and are a purveyor of fine comedy for many, many years. And uh, and like me, you think Hugh Grant can do no wrong. So... (laughs) I can um, do wrong. uh, Well, maybe not like me. Maybe you just like me and I like Hugh Grant. Uh, So where did you stand on the Dungeons and the Dragons? I didn't see it yet. And uh, the reasons are long and complicated, but they also stem from a curiosity because I, too, uh, back in the 90s, was trying to develop a D&D TV series, uh, you know, because it's a role-playing game that requires improvisation and, and uh, much of the dice rolls determine uh, how the plot rolls forward. And uh, the rights to the D&D massively complicated and resold and and people had bits of it and joel silver at one point we had to have a meeting with that guy because he's got his finger in that one so i am shocked that anything 
uh, came out because I know I got phone calls over the years going, hey, we're thinking of adapting uh, Dungeons and Dragons into something. I said, good luck wading through the myriad of uh, license uh, holders and, and so on and so forth. So I don't know how they got this done. And uh, I get where the boycotts are coming from because of some of the fingers in that pie are miserable. <laughs> well, not miserable. How do you say it politely? Uh, have other focuses other than the game itself. Let's say that. So, yeah, there is there is problematic uh, stuff underneath uh, anything coming to the screen. Having said that, I'm glad it's really fun. I'm glad they, they made it uh, better than just watching four guys sit around a table uh, rolling dice saying, I... I have a hit point of 20 or whatever. You know, that can get dull. Well, that was Stranger Things. Um, <laughs> I mean, Stranger Things was, you know, the, the whole season was about playing the game and seeing basically the game come to life. Uh, and it was intermittently entertaining. And this is entertaining through and through. And even when it starts to descend into maybe some action adventure movie tropes, they are um, magical. They evoke more Harry Potter than oh. some kind of heartless studio money machine, uh, no. for example. So I'm unclear here, though. So did you hear from Dungeons & Dragons fans, from game fans, that they were not happy about this movie or that they were not happy about, again, the corporate side of things because all i right. ever heard from fans of the game who saw the movie was this is an awesome movie okay yeah so i, I think it's the uh, the previous from the corporate side of it you know those who like to play it have to uh, either not know about some of the corporate entities that uh, have their finger okay. in it if you have a chance could you never ever Again, talk about men having their fingers in someone, <laughs> something, something. Because I feel like fingers in the pie. It's a Canadian. I understand. Term. No, fingers in the pie. It's not a Canadian term. In fact, doesn't it come directly from some old fairy tale? Anyway, the point is, if you're not gonna say pie, I feel like our show is gonna get me tooed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so these corporate entities that have some legal foot. In it, how about that? A toe in the pie. Oh God! Better. Actually, that's how I do taste my pies. <laughs> you can get such more of a full textured taste off a big toe than you can like a thumb or a finger. I anyway, guess. Yeah. look. Um, let's pretend that we still have an audience and a show. Have you seen any new releases? I have not. I've been traveling around the globe. So, so, it's so Barbie, tough. which passed a billion dollars around the world this past weekend, which is going to pass $500 million domestic this week. <laughs> um, okay. A studio comedy that is delighting audiences internationally. What could that change for the right. for, for filmmaking? And you haven't seen it. Okay, good. We'll talk about it in a future show. Belated spoiler alert. Subspace. Dare to wonder. 